You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident fanalist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore daddy. So I've still got my giant list of things to go through, and we'll see kind of how far we get to. But at the very least, uh, there's two things I want to address. Number one, and we've probably gone through a couple of these people before, but um, NFL Update... I don't know if you know them on Twitter or they do have a website. But he came out with his 2020 edition. He does it every year. Of It's a list of veterans who may get cut or possibly traded because of the salary cap situation. Again, I did try to, on my own to find a list of guys. Um, but there are a few additional, and I want to kind of go through some of them. As far as questions from the group that were in the master list that I wanted to address, and again, I, the, the problem with these is... I keep doing them halfway because I want to, like, that's a good question. I want to look into that. So I kind of half just look into this. And then you look at your watch and it's like, dude, you're out of time. <laughs> you got to pick one and kind of solidify this here. But the question was, what colleges have a pipeline to specific NFL teams and how well do those teams perform? Now, I'll admit, I mean, we can kind of look at the second half of that question. But, yeah, the, the biggest problem is most teams target, well, it, it's kind of twofold. First of all, there aren't as many teams that are very specific to one specific team. Most teams, there's kind of, you know, it's spread out. And I look back over 10 years, and the other problem is things change, right? I've got information on the Green Bay Packers, but if you look back over Brian Gutekunst's last two years, it doesn't really hold, and they don't really have a very specific thing. There are a couple teams where it's like, wow, they really, there's a very specific thing that they're doing, whether it's a school or a region, but that's not most. And then the, the secondary problem is when you get those handful of teams that are very specific, and if we even assume they're still doing that because this is 10 years old and they probably have a newer GM, then the problem is they're, they're all like the Alabama, Clemson, Georgia teams, right? So it's not like, assuming the question is, it's not like each team has their own college that they like and then which team is most is, is the best team, therefore which colleges are the better. I don't, I don't know what the, the goal of the question was, but the second part of the question probably won't be touched quite as much. But I did think it was interesting, and I found a way to answer the question, and it's kind of exciting. I can see how many, um, over the last 10 years, each team and how many from each college they went to. And it is kind of interesting. I mean, you've got some teams that they've got a bunch of 
guys, you know, five different guys from this team, four, three, two. You got some teams where it's like they got seven from this school and then no more than three at any other school. And then there's like one or two that have don't have more than like one or two schools at all, which you would think even by coincidence or by accident, you would draft somebody from a school more than two times. But anyways, I'll look at that. And again, we'll see where it goes from there. Make absolutely sure you are in the Packernet Podcast Facebook page. Nope, group. You like the Facebook page. And if you wouldn't mind or if you're able to, could support the show on Patreon, that would be greatly appreciated. If you got an aversion to Patreon, you could do like Kyle did and uh, jump on over to Venmo. If you want to do that, I will also include you in this raffle giveaway thing, at least for this month, because Venmo doesn't do month to month, at least I don't think. But uh, anyways, thank you, Kyle, for that. Really do appreciate it. Anyways, why don't we take a little break? And we'll talk about some stuff. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing. But they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. Hey, guess what? I got an idea. How about this spring, you follow your favorite baseball teams out to Arizona for Cactus League spring training? Great weather, great landscapes, exciting outdoor adventures, incredible food. Arizona is the perfect home base for baseball fans. It really doesn't matter how you want to dice this up. If you want to make this mostly a vacation with a little bit of baseball sprinkled in, which would probably be my choice, go for it. If you want to max out on baseball, we're talking 10 stadiums, 15 teams. You can absolutely decide to max out on baseball. Get there early, get a bunch of autographs, stay for the game, get some food. I don't know what else you do. You get get a little piece of paper out or something. Maybe you're baseball scouting. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you do. But if you're into that, I don't know why you would not be going to Arizona. If you're interested, or if you just want to check it out, head over to visitarizona.com/springtraining. That's visitarizona.com slash spring training. All right, let's take a look at some of these interesting little tidbits here. So the o- there were only two that I was really aware of. I knew the Redskins liked Alabama, and I knew the Jaguars had a strong affinity for Florida. That was something I had learned doing this draft stuff, that they draft a lot of Florida players. Just they're, they're I don't know, they like to keep it regional, I guess. I'm not really sure what that's about. However, the, there are two teams that have drafted players seven times from one school. The Ravens have drafted seven from Alabama. So in a, so in in reality, they're bigger on Alabama than the Redskins are. And the problem is again with that second part of the question, what are the results? I mean, they're pretty split. Re- the Redskins have been drafting Alabama players since forever, usually like defensive line, but they even, you know, they went out and got haha Clinton Dix. I mean, they I think they had an Alabama safety and then they went out and got ha-ha, and then they got what's-his-name, the other guy that was supposed to be great, that's another Alabama safety. I mean, they just load up on Alabama. Didn't they have Reuben Foster for a while, too? It was just the whole defense was, was Alabama. Reuben Foster at the middle level, ha-ha at the higher level. The, the defensive line is all Alabama, and they haven't been able to do anything with it. Then again, the Ravens, who, granted, have been pretty bad for a while, massive in Alabama, and they're obviously very successful right now. They're not the only ones. Uh, the Titans relatively heavily. One of the two teams that they draft a lot is Alabama. The Seahawks are pretty big on Alabama. And then the Jets a little bit are uh, 
one of the two teams that they draft semi-heavily is Alabama. But the other big team that has drafted seven players from one or more schools is the Bill. And actually, they have drafted seven players from Clemson, seven players from Florida State. So again, these are generally big schools. This isn't the case with every team, but for the most part, you're getting a lot of you know, SEC-type teams. I know Clemson isn't, but they're obviously a very big program. And I think what you find is whatever the bigger schools are, you're going to have the most drafted from because that's where most of the talent is from. But occasionally you can pick up something, right? For example, the Ravens didn't draft seven guys from Alabama just by coincidence. That's way too many. The next highest amount is Oklahoma. They've drafted four from Oklahoma. And then it drops down to three players from Notre Dame and Texas and then two. So the the fifth most drafted team, we're already down to two. Alabama has been seven. So there's just a massive drop-off after Alabama. And this is for various reasons, right? The the Green Bay Packers, at least at a time, and I don't think that's the case anymore, drafted very heavily from the West Coast because, apparently, they really trusted their West Coast scout. So there's all kinds of different theories and reasons, right? The Jaguars like to be regional. The Packers trusted a scout more than anybody else. Some teams, like apparently Baltimore and um, Washington, uh, just like the big programs, especially Alabama. Maybe they have a relationship with uh, with Nick Saban. Remember, Nick Saban was an NFL guy for a very long time. He's got relationships with uh, you know, guys like Bill Belichick and whatnot. But those are the two biggest. The next biggest, and, and by the way, big, it's kind of relative. Because some of these teams, like the Ravens, it's seven and then a big drop-off. Some of them, it's like there's six, but then there's some fives and some four, and it's just kind of a more gradual thing. But the Redskins in Alabama... The Patriots have drafted six apiece from Arkansas and Florida, which is also interesting if you're a draft person and you're doing mocks. Start taking notes. Kansas City has a strong affinity for Georgia. The Buccaneers, same for Ohio State. All of these have drafted six, so six guys in the last ten years. So fairly close to one-ish a year. I guess it's closer to half a year than one a year. The 49ers with South Carolina. Seems random, but there it is. And then after that, it starts to taper because you get into the fives and the fours and whatnot. But... Looking at the NFC North, the interesting thing there is nobody really has super strong affinities. I just put actually N.A. Uh, for the Vikings because the highest that they have is four, and they've drafted a lot of fours. Right, there's a lot of teams they have four players from. The Lions, the most that they have is three from any one school. So they have no particular affinity, or at least it seems that way. They just kind of draft best player. The only one in the NFC North that kind of seems to have something strong going would be the Bears. The Bears have drafted five players out of Georgia. The Packers, nothing super strong, but I might as well just say it because I'm. Uh, this is a Packers podcast. There are three teams that we have drafted four players from. Now, this is a fun little opportunity for you to pause it and try to think. You're not going to guess it. And the interesting thing is, I think one of these largely has to do with Brian Gutekunst. And again, this is the shift, and this is kind of, I guess, where I'm going to morph this into. And then one of these clearly is old school, so we're talking like West Coast. The other one, probably a little bit more old school, but who knows. Number one is Mississippi State. Brian Gutekunst has drafted two Mississippi State players in the two years that he's been here. We've had four in ten years, which means in eight years, Ted Thompson drafted two players out of Mississippi State. We have drafted four players out of Iowa, and the West Coast team that we have drafted four out of is UCLA. Now, there's no real reason when you're talking about four guys in ten years, and this could be true of just about any of them with the exception of a couple. You know, the Jaguars, I think, are pretty solid. The Redskins, the... You know, we could say the Bills and the Ravens, but if you're down to four or five or whatever in 10 years, one every other year, I don't know. However, let's look at 
Ted Thompson's tenure. And, and interestingly enough, this goes back to 2005, which is Ted Thompson when he started. If we look at Ted Thompson's history from 2005 through 2017, who he drafted, the most common team that we drafted out of is UCLA. He drafted five players. The number two team, actually it's a tie, would be Cal, and then number three would be Iowa. After that, you got a bunch of threes, Louisiana or LSU, Stanford, Arizona State, Colorado, Boston College, Louisville, Texas A&M. In other words, it's just kind of you know, whatever. But again, there was that West Coast bias. UCLA and Cal are two of the biggest, and then Iowa was another one, which maybe that's a coincidence. Maybe we had a Midwest regional scout. I, I don't know. I mean, we did. Maybe he liked the guy. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure. However, let's look at, at Brian Gutekunst and see if he carries that same kind of strategy. As far as West Coast teams, and I'm just kind of looking at this on the fly, James Looney, in 2018, 7th round pick, was out of Cal. Cole Madison is Washington State. Technically, that would count as far as West Coast. But I think that's it. In a contrast, and again, maybe this is just kind of a coincidence, but I'm seeing much more of a Southern bias. And remember, we got Milt from the Baltimore Ravens. What is the Baltimore Ravens bias? It's Alabama. Now, we haven't drafted any Alabama play. Well, actually, that's not true. We do have one Alabama player. He wasn't, you know, Milt wasn't around last year, so it kind of doesn't count, but we got J.K. Scott. But listen to these teams and see if you notice something. Southeast Missouri, Mississippi, skipping the West Coast, Notre Dame, South Florida, Alabama, Missouri, Vanderbilt, Iowa, Louisville, TCU, which is Texas Christian University, Notre Dame again, Toledo, Texas A&M, Texas A&M, Mississippi State, Maryland, and Michigan. It's almost entirely Midwest and South team, right? The Midwestern teams, Michigan. I guess Maryland probably isn't Midwest, right? That's Eastern-ish. Toledo, Notre Dame, Iowa, Notre Dame again. That's what, five or six guys? And then Southern teams, Mississippi State, Texas A&M, Texas A&M, TCU, Louisville, Vanderbilt. I'm not sure where you put Missouri. That's kind of like Midwestern-Southern-ish. It's like a hybrid, so it's both. Alabama, South Florida, Mississippi State, and Missouri again. Southeast Missouri, so that's definitely South. There is a lot of teams that are South, Southern teams, and Midwestern teams. It's only two years. Could be a coincidence. Maybe it's just where the chips fall, you know, best player available. But it definitely has a different feel to it. And if we just go back to 2016, Stanford, Cal, Northwestern, Stanford, Utah State, Indiana, UCLA. You, th- there is a night and day difference between 2016 and 2019 in terms of region. That's almost entirely Midwest and West, whereas now it seems to be Midwest and South. Again, maybe a coincidence, but I do think we're going to start to see more of them. And it'll be interesting to see if there's anything that, uh, again, we got, in, in two years, we got two Texas A&M and two Mississippi State players. Elton Jenkins and Hunter Bradley are both out of Mississippi State. Jay Sternberger and Kingsley Kiki, taken back-to-back, are both from Texas A&M. Oh, and two Notre Dame players also, Dexter Williams and uh, um, Equinemius. So it's, it's crazy that about half of the people that Brian Gutekunst has drafted have come from three schools. So we'll have to see how that goes. The Iowa trend continues, though, so that, that must be a, uh, a strong one for the Packers. Got Josh Jackson in the second round last year out of Iowa. But um, anyways, yeah, no, I thought that was more interesting than anything as far as if there's a theory about pipelines to to teams and becoming successful because you're basically professional version of Alabama or whatever. I don't really see any evidence of that. I think it really just comes down to relationships and strategies. All right, like you got, uh, you know, the some of these guys are regional like the Giants. The, the team that they have drafted from the most is Syracuse. 
nobody in the world is going to have most, I mean, not most of their players, but the largest number of players come out of Syracuse, unless you're the Giants, because Syracuse is in New York. So they've got a ton of access. They probably have good relationships with the schools, with the coaches. They've got scouts that, I mean, you, you, you don't even necessarily need to be a scout. You can be the GM and go cruise down. I don't know how far it is. It might be very, very far. I don't know. But you, you can go down there and see with your own two eyes. And so there's a comfort factor, if nothing else. Maybe this isn't the best player on our board, but, you know, I, there's, a, there's a comfort factor that I know because we've been very thorough with these guys that this guy's going to be at least what we say he is. You don't have that high risk of, I don't know, we haven't seen a lot. I think it has more to do with that than there being some kind of a successful strategy of just draft from big schools and you're going to win. All right, let's turn our attention to the um, possible cut candidates. Again, we've gone through this before, but let me reiterate something that doesn't super impact us, although it might. I talked about flying under the radar. This quarterback stuff is crazy. The quarterback, this is quarterback insanity. On top of the quarterbacks that are active free agents like Tom Brady, who I think the consensus is he's going to go back to New England, but we'll see, like Phillip Rivers, like Jameis Winston. You've also got guys like Cam Newton, who are not free agents, but it's a foregone conclusion that he's gone, like Andy Dalton, who is going to be getting replaced. And it would make sense that, although you could say it would make sense to keep a veteran on, um, I think that this team needs as much draft capital as possible, so maybe they try to trade him. Plus, they save $17.7 million in cap because all the guarantees are gone. So they could free up $17 million. If, if, I was, if I'm the Bengals, I want to get this taken care of before free agency starts or whenever I'm allowed to by league rules so that I can use that money and pour it into free agency. You've also got Joe Flacco, somebody that everybody forgot, but Drew Locke is the guy that's kind of key there. And he actually played a little bit and looked really good in a small sample size. And I think that they're ready to move on from Joe Flacco. And I think Joe Flacco is also going to be in the market. There's also... Derek Carr, which a lot of people think sounds crazy, but there are already rumblings now that they want to move on. There were rumors last year that they wanted to move on, but I don't think it was necessarily the right time because they had a lot of other needs and they weren't in a position to draft a quarterback last year. Here's the thing about this year. Thanks to the Chicago Bears and that Khalil Mack trade, the Raiders have picks at 19 and 12. They could possibly trade Carr. Imagine if they traded a Carr to a team like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And what they got in exchange was the ability to swap first-round picks and maybe get a few others somewhere else. So they go from 19 to 14. You could argue that 14 and 12 is enough to move up to the number three spot with a team that is likely looking to move back and get a bunch of more picks. Meaning they could leapfrog after trading their quarterback to number three and get Tua Vailoa. I haven't heard one person talk about that. I heard it was on, I think, the Draft Network podcast. They were talking about this possible trade happening and maybe going up and getting Herbert. It's like, dude, they could go up and leapfrog Miami and get Tua, and that throws everything off. I'm sorry for the non-draft nerds in the room, but i got to talk a little draft here for a second. That's crazy. Tell me that doesn't throw everything for a loop, and tell me that the Raiders aren't talking about that possibility. Forget Herbert. We can trade our quarterback, get some extra draft capital, trade up with Detroit possibly if they're willing. Which, by the way, I don't know that that's the best solution for the Packers because then they end up getting two relatively early picks. And as much as I know everybody's terrified of Derek Brown and and uh, uh, Jeff Okuda or whatever, the fact of the matter is the hit and miss rate is still about 50% in the first round. Maybe a little bit lower in the top three, but if they're grabbing two guys, it's just double the opportunity to get a real stud. 
and possibly, of course, getting two. So I, you know, I'm not saying I necessarily want this. I'm just talking about how crazy this all might be. We're, we're looking at an entire quarterback shuffle in the NFL, potentially. I do think Dak stays in Dallas. I tend to think Tom is going to stay in New England. We'll see how much money he gets offered in different places. But this is just wild. And then in a year in which some people, depending on what you think of some of these quarterbacks, think is a very good quarterback year. You know, Herbert, I think, is a very viable starting option. Some teams are going to fall in love with love. Some maybe not so much, but some are going to see him as the next Pat Mahomes and are going to want to get him for sure. It's just absolute madness. And I cannot wait for free agency to start and for this all to begin. And again, two things from the Packers standpoint. Number one is what I said before, gives the Packers an opportunity to fly under the radar. People are throwing 30, 40, you know, however many millions of dollars at these quarterbacks. Like, please come play for us so we're not terrible. Especially teams that probably don't think they're going to get one of these top teams, like Tampa. I mean, you're not getting Herbert. You're probably, unless you're going to trade up, you're probably not even getting love. You might, but you know how people get about quarterbacks, man. It gets crazy out there. And so while these teams are just falling all over themselves trying to get quarterback, gives us the opportunity to go out and maybe get a few other things. Secondarily, however, who's to say the Packers aren't going to go out and possibly get a quarterback? I know this hasn't been the Packers' M.O. in the past. We don't get veteran quarterbacks because having a good backup quarterback is just not an option for the Packers. We have to get undrafted free agents to come in and play quarterback, and if the, and if Aaron Rodgers gets hurt, we're doomed. That's the only road. It's Aaron Rodgers or bust. However, I would say that Brian Gutekunst is breaking from that Aaron Rodgers or bust mold, as evidenced by the fact that he actually went out and built a defense. And I think as we're about to see this year, when he says, no, it's not Aaron Rodgers only, we're going to go get him some, some weapons. And I think he's going to attack that very hard. But I think another area of doing due diligence is saying, let's say Aaron Rodgers gets hurt. Because if, you, if really, if you think about it, if we build this team the way a team should be built, especially a lot of the teams today, some of the things that people are best at, you can have replacements come in and win. Tennessee lost their quarterback, brought in Ryan Tannehill, and they were fine. The Eagles lost their quarterback and won a Super Bowl. Right? The Bears lose their quarterback. Granted, he's a terrible quarterback. And they're arguably better. The point is, though, you get a guy like like Matt LaFleur because he builds a system that's a little quarterback-friendly. You, you always have to have a quarterback that's cerebral and able to do certain things. But the point is, you I mean, look at, look at uh, Jimmy Garoppolo. Look at Jared Goff. These are guys that come from that same Sean McVay, Shanahan kind of system. And the point is, you don't have to have a stud quarterback to make this thing work. And so in all reality, let, why don't we actually take that seriously and look at it from the standpoint of if Aaron Rodgers gets hurt, we don't have to say, well, season's over. We can look at it and say, listen, we have still got a really good defense. We have still got X, Y, and Z weapons, right? We got Brashad Perriman over there. We got Devontae Adams on the other side. And we got LaVisca Chenault over here or KJ Hamler in the slot, whatever. We're doing all right. We can make this thing work. We just need a semi-competent quarterback to come in and be able to execute what we're doing i'm not talking about going out and paying for tom brady that's ridiculous but get one of these veteran backups that realize you know what time's up i would borderline say Jameis would be an option slightly concerned about the immaturity factor but i mean how wild would that be i'm not the biggest Jameis fan but if aaron Rodgers went down and maybe Jameis wants the moon and back and maybe he's going to get a ton of money but i i, I just I, I think he's gonna have a hard time finding a, a place to go but let's say there was something reasonable. And I'm just saying names to give you an idea of why we need a How exciting would that be? Because you know it's going to It's like Brett Favre all over again. Let's just call it what it is. Uh, he, this dude has got a lot of talent. He's also got a lot of super non-talent. <laughs> all rolled up into one body. 
and he's going to launch a lot of passes, and you're reuniting him with Prashad Perriman. Now I'm several layers deep into my making things up fantasy here, but he's got another good trio of receivers. He's got a much better offensive line, much better running back, much better defense. I mean, he's probably the wrong quarterback for what, you know, as far as the simple dink and dunk stuff, but be exciting. And the, the, the point is, let, why don't we entertain somebody? And please stop saying Tim Boyle is the answer. Tim Boyle had a decent enough preseason, just like a billion different people had good preseasons. So what? Lots of people have good preseasons and are garbage football players. Tim Boyle is not the answer at quarterback. The guy was undrafted for a reason. And by the way, remember when I did my uh, looking at different rounds to get certain players and I mentioned undrafted free agency is one of the best player places to find players outside of maybe the first three rounds? That did not apply to quarterbacks. Quarterbacks are round one, maybe round two, that's it. There is not a pile of undrafted free agents. In fact, I don't think there was one undrafted free agent that was a starting quarterback. Top 32 quarterback, which is basically all of them. Not one. And I don't think that's going to change. It's certainly not going to change for Tim Boyle. If you're curious at all, Tim Boyle played three years at Connecticut. In 275 attempts, would you like to know what his touchdown-to-interception ratio was? One touchdown, 13 interceptions. Timmy Boyle. Now, he did do much better when he went to Eastern Kentucky. He got up to seven touchdowns in one year. I'm sorry, it was 11 touchdowns. I'm looking at something. And only 13 interceptions. For a grand combined collegiate total of 12 touchdowns and 26 interceptions. He had a passer rating of 60.3. He also, dude's got legs. Don't forget, the guy can run. 68 rushing attempts. Take a wild guess how many yards. Negative 162 for an average of negative 2.4 yards per rushing attempt. His longest rush was 19 yards. He did have one rushing touchdown. Completion percentage average of 55.5. This is one of the worst (laughs) ever anythings I've ever seen in my life. Now granted, the Packers took him for a reason. There's obviously something to work with. Stop saying this guy's the answer. I know it's, uh, who is it, Herman, I think, that really likes Tim Boyle and has been banging the table for him. That's cool. Listen, there, there is a thing out there where every single team thinks they have a number three quarterback, and Tim Boyle used to be number three. That's going to be the next great thing. That's every team thinks their backup is some kind of a freak. I don't know why. It's just a weird thing with fandom. There's always these uh, obscure guys that need to get more snaps and really think that they're blah, 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 blah. blah. Now, granted, every once in a while, you get a number three guy by the name of Taysom Hill, who has actually a very talented quarterback, which, by the way, and I know most people, it's like the new cool, trendy thing to do is like, you know, there's always some way to prove how smart you are, is to pretend you know Taysom Hill is really bad, and everyone's just propping him up to be really good, even though he's not. All I know is a couple little things, and I I understand that we don't have the full picture to see if he could be an actual starting quarterback, and maybe he can't. Here's what I know. When he was with the Packers, I liked him for a couple reasons. Number one, he was the fastest quarterback in all of football. He he has about RG3 speed, and he's built like a fullback. He ran, I think, about as fast as RG3. Maybe I'm getting that wrong, but I I think that's... Maybe it was just RG3 was the only quarterback that was faster than him. Blazing speed. Beyond that, the guy has a rocket for an arm. I know somebody put out a, a video of him, like, missing passes. Those videos don't impress me because you can literally do that with every court. You can do that with Aaron Rodgers. You can do that with Pat Mahomes, Tom Brady, all of it. They've all thrown bad passes. And half of those, I think, were the wide receiver's fault anyway. Throwing a back shoulder and the wide receiver just stands there and keeps running. 
And beyond that, when he played with the Packers, the dude was just awesome all the time. And I, again, it's preseason, whatever, but when did he ever do one bad thing? And I'm talking about with his arm. This guy's launching 40-yard passes that are pinpoint for touchdown. He came out for like a quarter and just dominated. First game with the Packers, five attempts, four completions, 69 yards and a touchdown. <laughs> and he was sacked once. He only threw the ball five times, and out of that, he had four completions for 70 yards and a touchdown. That's ridiculous. His last preseason game with the Packers, four attempts, four completions, 31 yards and a touchdown. He was sacked twice on that drive. Now, I know part of the concern was he's already kind of up there in age. He's Right now, he's 29 years old, but I don't know, man. At the very least, keeping him for what for what the Saints have, I just, I just never understood that. We're, we're getting rid of Taysom Hill for who? For who? For Joe Callahan and Brett Hundley? I mean, I get saying, look, I don't think this is for real. I don't think this is going to work. But, dude, you can't take a flyer on Taysom Hill over Joe Callahan? And, by the way, I really like Joe Callahan. I think Brett Hundley was so basically in order of the backup quarterbacks in 2017. You had, obviously, Aaron Rodgers was the top guy. Taysom Hill, then Joe Callahan, then Brett Hundley. That was the order of how good the quarterbacks were. We got rid of Taysom. I'm sorry, that just annoys me. And I know some Packer fans are like, you know, get over it, move on. They don't like Packers talk, Packer fans talking about it. It's just annoying. I don't get it. It doesn't hurt you at all to just keep him. But we can't get rid of Brett and Joe Callahan's, you know, lower risk, I guess. But wh- wh- why do you care about low risk for your number three quarterback? Just, just, just annoying. Super annoying. Now you got Taysom Hill in 2019 with an overall grade of 92.3 in the postseason. His overall grade for the regular and postseason, 88.7. Not just as a runner. That was an 83.5 as a passer. Because, again, he's got a really good arm, and he seems to be quite accurate. An 88 overall grade. Limited sample size, but so what? He's always had a good arm. Again, maybe he's going to go on to be a starting quarterback and be garbage at it because he's just a gadget guy. Fine, then keep him as a gadget guy. A 6'2", 221-pound quarterback that runs a 4'4'4". The guy's as fast as Trevor Davis. Nearly, anyways. Two hundredths of a second difference. Anyways, this was not supposed to be a Taysom rant. This was not even supposed to be a quarterback conversation. But it, but it is something that to, to, I think needs to be discussed. There's no question, looking back over the history of teams, that the importance of having a backup. It's just, it happens all over the league. Quarterbacks are getting hurt everywhere. And a lot of these teams go on to have success because they have options at number two. And the Packers have never, ever satisfied that. Packers haven't had a legit number two quarterback since Aaron Rodgers. Maybe that means you draft one. I don't know. But do something. That's just, it's ridiculous. Anyways, let's look at the list. So, I, you know, I, I, we've talked about not spending a lot of money on running back, but let's talk about it anyways, because one of the interesting things is the conversation about Derrick Henry. Now, I don't think the Titans should pay Derrick Henry. I don't think the Packers should pay Derrick Henry. I don't think anyone should pay Derrick Henry, because I don't believe in paying 10 11 $12 million, whatever, for a running back. However... Derrick Henry isn't the only question for the Titans because Deion Lewis is also a free agent. If for whatever reason, and I can't think of even one, the Packers wanted to go out and get a running back, there are a lot of really good options. And again, most of these guys are going to fly under the radar. Deion Lewis, Jarek McKinnon, I think has been a very good running back, but he's constantly being relegated to the lesser roles. And then when he finally gets a leading role, he gets hurt. And with the 49ers having so much massive success with the running backs that they have, there's no reason for them to pay Jarek McKinnon, even the $4.5 million that he's owed. There's also Devonta Freeman, who's completely fallen off in the last several years. Whether that's a failing of the team in the scheme, I don't know. But, 
there's an option. And then also Mike Davis, who's probably more of a special teams guy than anything else. However, wide receivers. This is where, obviously, everybody's ears perk up. Number one, who is probably way too expensive, and I'm not super interested, but an option. And something to think about, because here's the thing. Half of this is, what do you think? In which case, I don't even want to necessarily talk about it. But there's always the what-if factor. Right? We, 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 I think most of us as fans have completely written this off. But is it impossible? Maybe it's just me because I have a podcast and I don't want to be taken off guard and just write things off and then it happens and then I have to backtrack. I don't know. But Sammy Watkins. There was another question, which I haven't gotten to yet, but something to the effect of what, looking at some of the other wide receivers who have been free agents and what is their effect. Well, depending on what you think of his value, because he's very expensive, Sammy Watkins went to the Chiefs and they won a Super Bowl. So how much of that role did Sammy Watkins play and was it worth all that money they paid? I don't know. But it's hard to argue that going out and paying money for a number two wide receiver isn't a good idea. Because, you know, Sammy Watkins. And here's the thing. We don't know what Sammy Watkins would necessarily cost unless they're going to try to trade him. But I don't know if they will. They may just cut him. Because they can save a, a pretty large chunk of change by, uh, by just cutting the guy. We're talking $14 million in savings. And once he's cut, you just go out and pay him whatever. Then you can negotiate with him. So we're looking at a guy that has a salary cap hit of $21 million, and in a trade he would cost $14 million. But if you look at his uh, calculated market value from Track, it's a little under $11 million. So that becomes a separate question. He fits the mold of a guy that's only 26. He's very young. So you could sign him to a, let's look at the Zedarius thing, a four-year contract at 26 years old from now until you're 30 through the entirety of Aaron Rodgers' career here. And you have Sammy Watkins as your number two. And I fully understand we've got wide receivers in the draft. You don't need to spend big money. But is, is $10, $11 million big money? Sammy Watkins, um, you know, and let, let's not forget, Sammy Watkins has 4-4-3 speed. So, I, you know, I don't know that he's a super elite player, but he does kind of fit the mold of what the Packers seem to be looking for. They need some more speed on the outside, and I think Sammy Watkins can bring that. So, again, I'm, I'm kind of out on it, not the biggest fan. But a, a former number four overall pick in the 2014 draft, who is only 26 years old, might be available for about $10 million, which in today's money is nothing. The next big mega contract, for, I mean, Julio got a $22 million contract. You're going to tell me $10 million is a lot of money? $10 million is trash money for a wide receiver. For a 26-year-old first-round pick? Again, I, I don't know if it's a good idea. I'm just telling you $10 million is not a lot of money. Even 14 is, is kind of skimpy. Uh, another option on this list is Albert Wilson. That's somebody whose name has popped up kind of a lot in uh, recent years. Miami Dolphins wide receiver, another guy with a good amount of speed, a smaller guy. He kind of broke out in 2018. The thing is, he completely fell off in 2019. So the question is, did he break out? And really, you could say 2017 with Kansas City was his first kind of big year. Miami did what the Packers did and kind of got him early in his breakout stage, and he really broke out. And then 2019 didn't work. Again, might just be the team is trash. I don't know. But he's only about 27. He's a smaller guy, 5'9", 186, but he's got 4'4", speed. He's an undrafted free agent, so, you know, there's a little bit more concern with whatever his issue is. But he's a slot guy. Packers do need a legit slot guy. And you get a 5'9", 186 slot guy with a good amount of speed that can get a little bit of separation. I think that's a big deal. Again, I'm not super in on it, but it's possible. 
And the Miami Dolphins stand to save $9 million by cutting or trading him. Now, do I want to trade him? In other words, give the Miami Dolphins additional you know, draft picks and pay him $9 million? No. But if they cut him, would I be interested in possibly looking at him for six or seven? Maybe eight-ish, whatever? Yeah. Consider it. There's also Jacksonville Jaguars wide receiver Marquise Lee. One of those guys that kind of reminds me of Allen Robinson, actually. He's stuck with the Jaguars. Everybody knows he's got some kind of talent, but he's just stuck there. But he's a decent wide receiver. He's a little bit older. He's got some injury issues. So it's a little bit more high risk. Again, older, injured, not a ton of production. He's never gotten more than 850 yards. He's never had more than three touchdowns. But again, he gets cut. He's cheap. It's worth looking at. Because at the end of the day, if he comes over, is he the automatic number two? I think the answer is yes. I think day one he starts as the number two wide receiver. Is he an elite wide receiver? No, but we have our number one. Remember, we're looking for a number two. Anyways, the tight end market, a lot of really old guys, which obviously is scary. Jordan Reed is one of the, my favorite tight ends that I've ever watched play. Just a, It's one of those things where I watched him in one game and I just my jaw hit the floor. I didn't know he was that good. But the guy has been injured nonstop. He is hurt every single year. He never takes the field, or he does for a couple games. So I think the answer to that is just no. Jimmy Graham is on our team. He's going bye-bye. Another option, which seems ridiculous, but isn't entirely impossible, if we decide to move on from, let's say, the two veterans that we have and we want to go out and get another really old guy, or maybe just cut Jimmy and bring in this old guy, Delaney Walker. Delaney Walker is a very good tight end. He's very old. And it's possible he just hit his Jimmy Graham wall. He's been a solid tight end. Again, remember when I talked about Jimmy or uh, the tight ends and how long it takes? Delaney Walker from 2006 to 2013. This is how far back you have to go, 2006. 2006 through 2012, he was with the San Francisco 49ers. He was never that good of a wide receiver. His best year was in 2012 with the 49ers. His last year, 429 yards, three touchdowns. Then when he went to Tennessee, things perked up a little bit. His first kind of really good year was in 2014. 2006, he was drafted in the sixth round, by the way. Eight years later, or nine years later, he finally has his first breakout year. From 2014 through 2018, he's been an absolute stud tight end. But then in 2019, he had his first year of just completely falling off. So he may have just hit that Jimmy Graham wall at 35 years old. But there's that little bit of a connection, even though he's basically hurt the whole year with Matt LaFleur. But it's, it's maybe. A little bit more of a realistic option would be Cameron Brait. Tampa Bay obviously has O.J. Howard already, and they've got to pay a lot of money to a lot of different guys. They would end up saving $6 million. Again, I, I don't, I'm not trading for Cameron Brait, but if he's around, it's definitely worth an option, uh, worth a look. 6'5", 245, he fits that mold, right? Receiving tight end, smaller, leaner. He's only 28. Not an elite player, but good enough, which is, I mean, that's just, tight ends are tough, man. I mean, it's crazy because they're super valuable. You look at some of the best tight ends and how much that, I mean, since forever. You look back at Tony Gonzalez and how much that transformed that team, the, the Atlanta Falcons. Jimmy Graham, Rob Gronkowski, Travis Kelsey. I mean, when you get a top-tier tight end, it is transformative. And you are one of the most, I mean, it's hard to find lethal offenses that don't have lethal tight ends. And when you have a lethal tight end, it usually transforms into a great offense. But they're just so few and far between. These guys are usually not very good. They're always hurt because it is a punishing position. And being able to nail these guys in their prime, and usually they don't they don't stay in their prime all that long. It's kind of like running backs. You know, you look at Greg Olson, you think, man, that was one of the greats. Greg Olson, again, from 2007 through 2011, nothing. Then he had his breakout years from 2012 through 2016. That was it. 
He was great from 2012 to 2016. In the last three years, he's been irrelevant. Even look at guys like Zach Ertz. He's still fine, but I mean, his his big years were, you know, 2013, 14, and 15. I guess 2017 also, but you know, it's kind of it. He hasn't been the guy. I mean, he's not on Travis Kelsey's tier. He's not on, on George Kittle's tier anymore. It's just, it's such a weird position, man. Another tight end option, Red Ellison out of New York. Not super interested. 31 years old. I think he fell off a couple years ago. Switching to defensive line, I already mentioned Marcel Darius and how dangerous that could be. Some other options, Don Terry Poe, not a big fan. I know he was a first-round pick and all that stuff, and he's that 6'3", 346-pound space eater. That's space eater, not space heater. Although I'm guessing if you were sitting in a small area with him, it'd probably steam up pretty quick. But, I mean, he's just, he's been just kind of mediocre his entire career. So I'm not a huge fan of Don Terry Poe. There are a few other options at linebacker and whatnot, Alec Ogletree and Christian Kirksey, who aren't very good. The, the, the more interesting thing from here on out for me is the guys that people may be losing. For example, one of the people that they say could be leaving and be a cap casualty would be Everson Griffin. Now, Everson Griffin isn't their most talented edge rusher or their most talented defender. However, I'm really hoping that the beginning of this Vikings teardown starts. The Vikings right now, as you know, the as Spotrac has them, are $12 million in the hole. Now, we don't know exactly what the salary cap is going to be, but they set it at uh, two, about $200 million. And so something has to be done. And I think Everson Griffin is the most glaring of these options. And it, it's great because Everson Griffin and Daniil Hunter are a great duo. They really are. I mean, it, it's kind of like Zedarius and Preston where one is clearly the better pass rusher, but it's a good duo. And you lose that duo, and it really does hurt. Think about how much that combination really impacts things. How many times does Zedarius get to a guy because Preston is pressuring from the other side, whereas he, otherwise he could have just ran in that direction, but he can't because Preston's there, or vice versa? How many of Preston's sacks came because Zedarius chased him in that direction? The duo matters, and if you get rid of Everson Griffin and you just have a void there, that's going to hurt their defense. You've also got Xavier Rhodes. He's on this list of guys that are possibly going to be going bye-bye. Not saying I want him. I don't. But that's an option. Here's another one that the Packers could be interested in. And I don't think the Vikings are going to get rid of him. But if they did, I'd be all over it. And that's Mr. Linval Joseph. They have got a lot of high-dollar players. Anybody over $10 million is a, a pretty big high-dollar player. They've got Kirk Cousins, who counts $31 million against the cap. His contract is fully guaranteed, so he's not going anywhere. Stephon Diggs is getting 14 and a half. Daniil Hunter is 14 and a half. Everson Griffin is, is almost 14. Riley Reef is 13, Xavier Rhodes is 13, and Linval Joseph is 13. The difference is, dead cap for Linval is only 2.4. Compare that with, like, Adam Thielen, who's at about 13, 8.2 million of that would be dead if they cut him, so they can't cut him. Anthony Barr, can't cut him. So again, I don't think Linval's going anywhere, but if there's any opportunity to get your hands on him, that makes sense to me. So th- there's a lot of reasons that this is awesome. You look, go back to the list, Leonard Floyd for the Bears, very similar situation. Obviously, Leonard Floyd is not their top pass rusher. However, this is already a team in decline, and they need to find a way to stop the bleeding. And the fact of the matter is, they don't have much money. They're sitting at about $13 million, so it's not the worst position to be in. However, they got a billion free agents to figure out. We've gone through it before. Danny Trevathan, Chase Daniel, HaHa Clinton-Dix, Sherrick McManus, Aaron Lynch, you know, Nick Witkowski, who's assumed to be gone, but we'll see. And so you start to look at who's on here that doesn't need to be on here. We've talked about Allen Robinson as a receiver. I mean, you get rid of him, you got nothing. But if you keep him, you got nothing. He counts $15 million against the cap. 
And then Leonard Floyd is the big one, $13 million. He's not productive, and there's no cap hit. So he's as good as gone. And no, they can't cut Mitch Trubisky. Uh, Prince of Mukamura is another one that's on this list. Again, don't want him, but this is the decline. This is the teardown. And it's, it's just a beautiful thing. Because when you're trying to look at, and this is, talk about a tangent on top of a tangent. This has gone in all different directions. I just, I, I just said I wanted to read the article. I didn't say there were good options. In <laughs> There's a couple, and I really got to go. I'm very late here, but whatever. I'm enjoying this. I, every time we get to this topic, I just, I'm in heaven. And you're just going to have to listen to me, and I hope that you enjoy it too. Looking at trajectory. The Lions are at the bottom trying to rebuild. And they're actually, they're at the bottom and they're starting to tear down, which is just a terrible sign, right? You should be starting to build up. They thought they were building up. They thought they were doing stuff. They went out in free agency, right? You don't do that if you're tearing down. They, they went out and they went tray flowers and they went and got their slot corner and we're going to make a run here. And it was a nightmare. And halfway through the year, they started tearing down again. So now they got to try to rebuild all over again. So they're just kind of stuck at the bottom trying to get out of the mud. The Bears had their high point. They massively fell off. They need to figure out what to do. They're overpaying guys they shouldn't be paying. They don't have draft capital, so they can't draft. I mean, they do have two second-round picks, which is better than what they've had in the past. Watch them trade up and lose that, like they did last year when they didn't have a pick until, like, the third round. They still traded up. I, I, they're just a horribly managed team who had their opportunity and right now are just trying as hard as they can. I, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're going up a steep hill in the snow. And you got to just keep going. And you can see that there's a backed up line of cars. And you're thinking, dude, if this car stops, we're going backwards or we're going nowhere. And you're just trying to keep as much forward momentum going as you can. Because otherwise, you're just going to keep going backwards. That's the Bears and the Vikings right now. They are in a dire situation. The Vikings have done a very good job of beating the odds. Because for two years now, we've been saying they can't maintain this as far as the salary cap. But they just keep pushing it off and keep pushing it off and keep pushing it off. And Vikings fans keep popping up going, Oh, I thought you said we couldn't afford anybody. And we signed everybody. Salary cap's a myth. Now they're $13 million in the hole and talking about possibly getting rid of, of, of Everson Griffin. Not because you don't want them, because you can't afford them, because you're paying too much money for guys that don't deserve it, like Anthony Barr, who's not even a good linebacker, but you just had to have him. They're trying as hard as they can, while, while from a distance you're looking at it, and all the pundits are, you know, what do you think about the NFC North? Well, I don't know. It's going to be a tough race between the Vikings and the Packers. And, you know, you still got to watch out for the Bears if they can turn a corner. But if you're looking at it in the, the smaller, more granulated term, and you really analyze what's going on, the Vikings and Bears are fighting as hard as they can to just keep from backsliding. The Packers right now had a 13-win season, and they haven't even begun, or they've begun. They, they, they've barely scratched the surface in terms of building this team. Two drafts and a, and a couple big swings in free agency. And they still have the second most salary cap of anybody in the division. They've arguably been drafting the best of anybody in the division. right? They, through the first two rounds, what did the Packers end up with? Rashawn Gary, Darnell Savage, and Elton Jenkins. The Lions got TJ Hawkinson and Jelani Tavai. The Vikings got that center who's not very good. And then in the second round got a tight end that everybody forgot about, Irv Smith. He might be hurt, actually. That's entirely possible. Maybe that's why he disappeared. And the Bears waited, didn't pick until the third round. And then they took a running back, who's not that good. So, I mean, it's just it's just hard to see a situation in which, in the long term, the Packers aren't the better team. 
anything's possible. The Bears next year, they could completely fall off this year. Next year, go out and grab one of the top tight quarterbacks, and there's at least two that are supposed to be really, really good. And this whole thing gets flipped on its head. They suddenly have draft picks again. They suddenly have money again because they purge all this stuff. And maybe they just go out and get a new GM who's somewhat competent. Anything could happen. But I'm just trying to look at it for what it is. And I don't think anybody being honest can look at this situation and say the Packers are the team to bet on long term. Even if you don't believe in Aaron Rodgers, so what? Kirk Cousins is about to go. Mitch Trubisky's a joke. Matt Stafford's close to being on the way out. Which quarterback exactly are you betting on in the NFC North, not named Aaron Rodgers? And even if you think the next, you know, the, the well, the, the Bears are going to draft somebody and they might draft somebody better. Yeah, and so might the Packers. So we're kind of just talking in circles here. This is why I enjoy this process of, of building and managing a team also, because it's such an artful, th- it's, it's, it's a thing of beauty. And I don't, think, I don't think Ted Thompson really gets enough credit for the job he did. He wasn't perfect, but his ability to, to sustain success, and the Packers have been good at that for a long time since Wolf, build success and sustain it. Now, I think Ted, one, one thing Gutekunst brings is that understanding of when we get to that level of being really good, you push. And that's, that's most teams these days. The good teams, you're going to see those teams in midseason go real heavy into, the, into picking up additional players, trading, whatever, because they want to make that push. And I think Gutekunst is a part of that crew now. He's, he's a little bit more high risk. He understands that if you want to get over the hump, you got to push all your chips in. And, and the way contracts can be structured these days with these one-year contracts, these prove-it deals, which weren't as common before, you can go high risk. And if it doesn't work, just cut everybody. And you get all your money back, and then you didn't really lose much. You get to stay on your feet. It's not going to knock you off your feet. But anyways, it's way past time. i got to get going. You folks have yourselves a fantastic Thursday. I will talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. Bye-bye.